Welcome to the One God Report podcast. And we are going to look into a very important passage, Philippians chapter 2. And I say it's important not necessarily because it's more important than any other passage of Scripture, but because so many people that believe in the deity of Jesus or that believe that God is a trinity believe that this passage really describes Jesus as being God and that he's made a decision as God to become man. They see Philippians chapter 2 as one of the slam dunk passages, if I may say so, Steph. When I first came to this understanding that God is one and Jesus is God's Messiah that God raised from the dead, in my attempts to explain Philippians chapter 2 to you, it took a while for you to see this passage in a different light. And it wasn't, if I remember correctly, it wasn't until you saw a picture of Jesus on the cross, Mm -hmm. crucified, that you understood that, you know what, a big part of Philippians 2 is that it's describing Jesus humbling himself, giving up his life, Mm -hmm. which really we're all called to do. Jesus Mm -hmm. said, if you save your own life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you will gain life in the age to come. So Philippians chapter 2 involves losing your life, humbling yourself before God, and then God will exalt you. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a passage that I think maybe right after some passages in the book of John, most Trinitarians think, oh, Philippians chapter 2 tells me that Jesus is God. And I th- think we're going to see that there are big problems with that interpretation and that there's a far better way to understand this passage. And actually, you're robbing Jesus of the truth of who he is by reading into this passage the idea that there was some kind of a decision made before Jesus was a human being as a member of the Godhead, as the God the Son, second person of the Godhead, where they were perhaps having a conference. And he decided that he was going to become man for us. That's not in this passage. There's no description of members of the Godhead deciding who would become man or that Jesus, as a pre-existent God, decides he will become man. That's not the humbling decision Jesus makes. But we will see that all of the humbling decisions described in Philippians chapter 2 deal with what is the when and the where of the humbling decisions of Jesus. When is when he is a human being and where is on this earth. Now, before we get into the passage a little bit closer, but I, I just wanted to say that in many ways, the Trinitarian or deity of Christ interpretation of Philippians chapter 2, I believe, ignores the context of Paul's writings in the book of Philippians and in all of the Pauline literature. And what do I mean by that? Here is the Jewish person that God chose to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. If he wanted to tell us that Jesus, the Messiah, is actually God, he could have done it, he would have done it much clearer. He wouldn't do it in a, hey, by the way kind of fashion. 
in four or three or two verses in the book of Philippians when he wants to teach us a practical humility. He's not going to slip in there and say, oh, by the way, Jesus is God. And that's your example for why you should be humble. We would expect Paul to clearly call Jesus God in passage after passage after passage, explain that he's one member of the God. I mean, he's got the whole book of Romans where he goes over Jewish-Gentile relations in relation to the law, all kinds of different subjects. There's not a whisper of the idea that Jesus was a member of the Godhead. Instead, in the book of Philippians and throughout Paul's literature, he constantly distinguishes between God on the one hand and Christ Jesus on the other hand. That is, God entire. Mm -hmm. God is not Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is not God. We'll see it three times in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the passage we're going to look at. Three times Paul distinguishes between God on the one hand, and it's God entire. In the book itself, he calls God the Father. It's another name for God. He distinguishes between God the Father on the one hand and Jesus the Messiah on the other hand. For instance, at the beginning of the book, he gives a greeting. Verse 2 of Philippians chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. There's God. He's not saying it's just one member of the Godhead. He's calling God the Father. God entire, another name for God entire, is the Father. So grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. So they're differentiated. One is not the other, and the other is not the first one. They're differentiated. Look at verse 11. Paul says that he hopes that you'd be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which come through Jesus the Messiah, to the glory and praise of God. See how they're differentiated? Mm -hmm. Fruits of righteousness, which come through Jesus Christ, I think sometimes if you, people will just say, Jesus the Messiah, it will help them understand that this is a human being. Because somehow Westerners think Christ is a title for deity. It is not. The Messiah in the Bible is not God. He's anointed of God. Mm -hmm. So if we just understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the fruits of righteousness come through Jesus the Messiah, to the glory and praise of God, right? They're differentiated. Jesus the Messiah is not God, and God is not Jesus the Messiah. Now, I've just read through Philippians not long ago, and I see that at least 10 times God is differentiated from Jesus, and Jesus is differentiated from God in this book. So it would be very strange for Paul here to be telling us in a section that's, oh, let's face it, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, 6, 7, the language is very uh, poetic. Almost. Poetic, that's a good word. Mm -hmm. And it's dense, right? They're words that are not used a lot in other places. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be lots of translation decisions to make. If you're going to translate the Greek into English, you're going to have to decide and choose which word you want to use to translate that word in English. That means the presuppositions of the translator are going to come into play here. So let's keep all of those things in mind. And I really think that it doesn't make sense to say that Paul is here when he wants to teach a practical matter of how to be glorified. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the thrust of this passage. 
Don't lord it over other people like the Gentiles do. Here's the path to glory. We have Jesus Christ, the human being, as our example, the chief example. Here it is. He's not going to slip that in there and say, oh, by the way, he's God. It doesn't make sense. Let's read this passage. And Preston, if can I ask you to read? Let's get a little bit more of the context. So if you would, please start reading from Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It's the last verse of uh, chapter 1 of Philippians. And read through verse 11 of chapter 2. Okay. Thanks. The version I have is the American Standard Version. Philippians 1.29 Because to you it has been granted on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer on, in his behalf, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. If there is therefore any exhortation in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tender mercies and compassions, Make full my joy that you be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, doing nothing through faction or through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other better than himself, not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others, having this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus." who, existing in the form of God, counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yes, the death of the cross. Wherefore also God highly exalted him, and gave unto him the name which is above every name, in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, thank you. Once again, I think this passage is better understood as describing the attitude of Jesus that he had while he was on earth and that the decisions to humble himself were made when he was a human being. There's no description of members of a Godhead deciding that one would become a human being here. The main passage, why don't we start with verse 5 and just kind of take a look at these phrases uh, starting in verse 5. But we see that humility is the example that leads to glory. The path to exaltation by God is humility. And I think that probably is a real pertinent message to the Philippians who were predominantly Gentiles. If you remember in the book of Acts, there weren't that many Jews who came to believe in the city of Philippi. They're mostly Gentiles that have the idea that the greatest among you, the Lord among you, is the one who can give orders and, and lords it over others. As Jesus said, the greatest among you is a servant. That's the path to exaltation. So it has application in that way for a Gentile audience especially. Now let's look at verse 5 where it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's telling us to have a similar mind to Jesus the Messiah. Right away, I think we can see in this passage, we're talking about the human being, Jesus the Messiah. Why? Because Paul says that. He doesn't say, have the mind in you, which the second person of the Godhead had. 
Jesus is the name of the human being. Messiah is the title of the human being. You would not call the eternal God the Son, Jesus the Messiah, before he was born. That's clear. So he's saying this is the mind that is in Jesus the Messiah. And people make the point, and it's, it's uh, pertinent, that we also have to remember that at the time of writing, Jesus the Messiah is the risen, glorified human being at the right hand of God. So there is a way in which that risen, glorified, at the right hand of God, Jesus, hum, the human being Jesus, immortal, still has this mindset. And this phrase, in Christ Jesus, in the Messiah Jesus, many times relates to the fact that that's where Jesus is now. Our salvation is in Christ Jesus, mm -hmm. because right now he is exalted in heaven. So, yes, I think in this passage we're going to see that Jesus has this mindset when he's on earth. But it as well pertains to that he has this mind even now in his exalted state at the right hand of God. But it's very important to see who we're talking about here. It doesn't say have this mindset that was in God the Son, the pre-existent before he was incarnated God the Son. It says have the mind that is in Christ Messiah Jesus. That's the human name and human title of Jesus. So already we can say, you know what, it's better to understand this passage as Jesus making these decisions of humility when he is on this earth. Yeah, and just to add that a little bit, the, the whole purpose, he's trying to convince a group of people who have this very worldly type of, th of thinking to have this completely different type of thinking. He's trying to unify them, make, uh, like in verse 2, Make full my joy that you be of the same mind. So he's getting this group of people who've never really thought this way before. And what example does he use? He uses the example of the Son of God who had the full authority of God, but decided to, to humble himself, saying, if this man who God himself said, listen to him, hear his voice, who gave him the words to say, who gave him the power to do things, if he didn't take glory for himself while he was on the earth, but instead allowed God to give him the glory basically being patient, being full of faith, you do the same thing. It's the best example that Paul could possibly choose, mm -hmm. other than perhaps himself, mm -hmm. who is also a very, and he does this in other places that we read, he had a very high status among the Pharisees and among the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and he gave that up. So he's, he's similar to Christ in that way as well. And he's saying, if Christ can do it, what a great example that was, then you can do it as well. He's trying mm -hmm. to get through to these people. Mm -hmm. And you can see that using Christ as the Son of God, who became a servant, is a very powerful example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me say two things about that. Mm -hmm. One is, you're, that's, I agree with you 100%, because it doesn't make sense for Paul to say, folks, I want you to be humble. Be like the eternal second person of the Godhead who decided to become a human being. It doesn't make sense for Paul to try and use that as an example for us as human beings. Mm -hmm. Because none of us can say, hmm, I think I'll go be a worm mm -hmm. or something like that, which is even that, that doesn't even compare to the idea of God becoming a man. So for Paul to be trying to make that claim, and that, this is what the deity of Christ, Trinitarian interpretation wants to say, mm -hmm. is that Jesus, the example 
that we, Paul is giving us here is this is the second person of the Godhead who decided to become man. It doesn't make sense. The second thing is, I think the same principle that Paul is talking about in this chapter, Peter talks about, James talks about, we saw how Jesus talked about it too. Mm -hmm. It's the idea, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you. Mm -hmm. James chapter 4 verse 10, pretty much the same exact idea. 1 Peter 5, 5 to 6. You know what, let me just read that because I really think that it's not so complicated to see that Paul is talking about here the same thing that Peter and James were talking about. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Likewise, you that are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. That's really a parallel to the example that we see Paul describing of what Jesus did. Let's go to the next uh, phrase then. It's verse 6, where it says, Who, speaking of, of Jesus the Messiah, who, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's take that first phrase. Being in the form of God. It is a present participle. So Paul could be saying that, keep in mind that Jesus right now is the form of God. But he also, I believe, is, is relating that to the Jesus Christ who is on this earth. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is in the form of God? It does not mean that he is God. This is one place we can see in this passage that Jesus is differentiated from God. Mm -hmm. Trinitarians want to say that this phrase tells them that Jesus is God. I think it's saying exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. Because if you're in the form of God, you are not God. Now, to be fair, some Trinitarian translations don't do this passage justice. And one of those translations is the New International Version that translates this passage as Jesus being in very nature God. Now that's deceptive. That's a translator's choice of words trying to somehow say that Jesus Christ is the same nature of God. This passage does not say that. It says, who being in the form of God. The word for form is morphe. Now what does it mean to be in the form of God? It does not mean in nature. The form is the, the outward appearance. For instance, I'm looking in this room right now at impressions in kind of a plaster of Paris of our children's hands. We still have these, the kids' hands in a form. Now that form is a form of that kid's hand. It's not the kid's hand. The kid's hand made that impression, I guess you could say, but that clay is not the kid's hand. It's the form of the kid's hands. So you can see what the kid's hand looks like or looked like, but it's, you don't see the hand itself. And that's who Jesus is. He's perfectly representing God in character, in demeanor, in how he relates to people. He is God's representative. So this is telling us that Jesus is not God. He's representing God, but he's not God. Mm -hmm. Another aspect in which Jesus is in the form of God, or even on this earth as a human being, he was in the form of God. 
in that he represented God and he was, he was born the king of the Jews with all the rights and privileges that that entails. And he perfectly obeyed God. And he deserved to inherit all that God Almighty has in plans for human beings, Jesus himself being the chief representative. So like the kings of old, like David and Solomon, sat on the throne of God. The book of Chronicles says that Solomon sat on the throne of yod heh He sits on the throne of God. He's representing God. In that sense, he's in the form of God. He's representing God. Jesus, perfectly, he's the ideal human being that represents God. Now, he has the authority from God to judge as we see in other places in the scripture. Paul says that God has given authority to the man Jesus. And we know this because God has raised that man from the dead. So Jesus has the authority to judge. Jesus has the, all the rights and privileges of the king. And instead of lording it over people, he's going to humble himself. Let's look at the next phrase in verse 6, which is a very difficult one. And there's a word in here that some people say it's the most examined word in all of the New Testament. My uh, Revised Standard Version says, who Jesus, who's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, there's a few words in here that are difficult. And again, it's going to be a translator's choice. Your presuppositions are going to really determine how you translate it. One of the words that is discussed here is this word, something to be grasped. It can be a noun. It can simply mean a, like a spoil, like the booty. Or it can be an action, like robbery. And then you have this, the phrase, equality with God. Now, I think this verse can be understood this way. And I'm not going to say I'm 100% going to say this is the way it is. But I think it can be understood this way. In that Jesus did and does have a certain equality with God. The same word for equality with God that occurs here in Philippians chapter 2 occurs in the book of John, chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus was calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that he's equal in nature with God, like Trinitarians and deity of Christ people want to take it. No, rather, it relates to the biblical and Hebraic idea that I'll say it in Hebrew first to sound kind of sophisticated. The one who is sent is equal to his sender. What does that mean? We have the idea in the Western world of power of attorney. If a businessman is traveling and he's overseas and he wants Preston to make a business deal for him here in Tennessee, that businessman can give Preston power of attorney and therefore, Preston will have full equality in the eyes of the law to sign for the documents that the businessman wants Preston to sign for. He has an equality with that businessman because he has a power of attorney. And in the same way, the one sent by God is representing God with an equal status and authority and power. Why? Not because that person that's sent is God or not because he has it innately by himself but it's because God gave him that authority. So if you don't acknowledge that authority in the one sent, you're not acknowledging God. Mm -hmm. And that's the equality 
that Jesus has with God. It's a granted authority, like a power of attorney. Now, I think in a certain way, Jesus knew he had that. And he doesn't have to grasp it. He doesn't have to hold on. That's the other thing that they argue about in this passage. Is this grasping, a, grasping something that you don't have, like you want to get the spoils and you're trying to get it, something that you don't have? Or is it something that you already have and you're not going to hold on to? And even the Trinitarians, they go back and forth on this. They want to say, okay, Jesus had some God, some, somehow the authority of God because he was God, and he's not going to hold on to it. That's the way they interpret it. But it, it, the scripture's not saying that, right? Jesus is in the form of God. It's not saying that Jesus is God. So I think a viable way to understand this, and again, like I say, I don't know if I would say this is it, you know, because there are other ways to understand it. But one way to understand this is that, yes, Jesus knew he had a certain equality with God, representing God in the form of God. And he didn't have to hold on to it because God gave it to him. He knew he had it. He knows, Jesus the Messiah knows that he has the authority to raise the dead. Remember what he said in John 5? Marvel not at this. The dead in the tombs are going to hear the voice of the Son of Man and rise. He knows he has that authority from God. He knows he doesn't have to wrangle and hold on to it. Right? He doesn't have to grasp on, he doesn't have to hold on. Either way you want to look at it. Right? And I think what Paul is saying here, same thing to you believers in Philippi. Folks, you have authority. You have glory from God. Now, you don't have to hold on to it. You can humble yourself. You can act like a servant. We're going to see the parallel to the, the form of God is the form of a slave, of a servant. Be a servant and watch. God will exalt you. And it goes with what Jesus taught as well. You know, this is the life that God has made for us. He designed life. And one of the ways he designed life was for us to serve each other, which is very counter to pretty much every single worldly culture. Hmm. So you look at the life of Jesus. He is yeah, a firstborn exactly. among many yeah. brethren. Yeah. So he is the, the author and perfecter. He's the one that blazed the trail. He's the example that we can look for. And he's... His mind is the mind that we should have. Hmm. So he's, he's forming Christians, people who are like Christ, hmm. who have Christ in them. Yeah. And a big part of that is, is serving one another, which is a very probably novel idea to these people. And Jesus is the perfect example of hmm. that. You know, we didn't mention that as you read on in Philippians, he gives a couple more examples of people that had this attitude. Mm -hmm. He himself, but he also mentions Timothy in uh, chapter 2, the very same chapter, verse 21. They all look out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So he, he gives Timothy as an example of a person who's ready to serve. And then he also mentions Epaphroditus, who had mm -hmm. such a servant attitude that he almost died. Mm -hmm. And then some, that way he's parallel to Jesus the Messiah, who did go to death with his servant attitude. Yeah, and we see Jesus himself, he flips the world economy on its head saying, the greatest among you will be the greatest servant, yeah. mm -hmm. which is a completely yeah. different. It's, it's the kingdom of God, which Jesus is the king, is different than the worldly kingdoms. That's exactly what this passage is talking about. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Should we go to the verse seven? Mm -hmm. So Jesus, backing up into verse six there, Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. Verse seven, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. We'll stop there. That's just verse 7. Okay, So he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. 
Now, Trinitarians want to say that Jesus emptied himself to become a man. That he was the second person, eternal second person of the Godhead. He emptied himself and became a man. That's not what the scripture says here. It says he emptied himself, took the form of a servant. So once again, this, is, this passage is better understood as a decision for humility that Jesus the Messiah, the names of the human and the title of the human, made while he's a human being. And I think this is exactly the same thing that he says in other places. Whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it. There's an emptying of himself. Trinitarian theologians have gone into all kinds of explanations. One of them, this word is related to, uh, in Greek, to the word kenosis, which means an emptying. So they have kenosis theories, which says the second person of the Godhead, now listen to this one, voluntarily surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. The first time I heard that, I said, oh, I need to get that one down, because that sounds very erudite, and that sounds very impressive. If I can teach that, that this God the Son voluntarily surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes, kind of impressive. If I can teach that and say, okay, I want you to repeat that for me on a test. I was impressed when I first heard that. I says, hmm, I better remember that one. But it doesn't say that in this text. There's nothing here about the pre-existence of Jesus saying, I'm going to become a man. Rather, we here have Christ Jesus making a decision to give up his rights as the king of Israel. So the emptying act of Messiah Jesus was not to become a human being, to become a fetus in the womb of his mother. Rather, the emptying act of Messiah Jesus was to take the form or the role or the status of a servant. And that's most evident as expressed in the next verse where he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I'll, I'll say this too. I think that a lot of people look at this who are Trinitarians as somehow Jesus was constantly being tempted to use this almighty power while he was here on earth, but emptied that ability or decided not to use these special miraculous powers that he inherently had. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus had anything other than what the Father had given him. And it says the same thing about us, too. Mm. He didn't have glory without the Father giving him glory. Mm. We are the same way. Mm -hmm. And he had to follow the instructions of God to be a servant, to be loving, to put others above yourself. And another thing, as you were explaining, a commentator that I was reading recently is not a Trinitarian. He makes a suggestion that really what's being talked about here by Paul, describing Jesus, really comes to a focal point in the... Gethsemane and crucifixion of Jesus, where Jesus is in Gethsemane. And like you were just explaining, Preston, remember what he said? Don't you know, I could appeal to my father and he would send 12 legions of angels. Mm -hmm. He didn't do that. He humbled himself. And that's what we're going to see. He humbles himself. He takes the form of a servant. Now that is your parallel to the form of God, form of a servant. A servant. There are a number of illusions Right? References back in the book of in Philippians here with Paul. All this dense vocabulary. There are some allusions to the Old Testament. And this is one of the stronger ones. That Jesus takes the form. That is, he has the, the role, or you could even say the status, the outward appearance, this description, the form of a servant. 
This is Isaiah chapter 53. Hmm. In Isaiah chapter 53, the servant is not yud Hey vav Hey. That's the personal name of God, pronounced either Yahweh or Yehovah, Yehovah. When you read Isaiah 53, you can see again, and, and this, is, this is too bad how Trinitarians misinterpret this passage because they want to say that, yes, Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53, and they say Jesus is God, Jesus is Yahweh. It doesn't make sense. When you read Isaiah 53, you can see a distinguishing between Yehovah, Yahweh, and the servant. It was the will of Yehovah to bruise him. Yehovah will exalt him. He's distinguished. So the servant is not God. The servant is the one who is humbling himself. And here you have the word appearance as well in Isaiah 53. He had no appearance or comeliness that we should desi uh, desire him. So he, here Jesus takes the appearance of a slave. A slave is not going to be dressed grandly. He's not going to have the rights of a king. This is what Jesus is doing. He becomes a servant. He did exactly what he told us to do. He said, you want to be great? Become a servant. The next phrase here, and again, there's translation. Being born in the likeness of men, or really becoming or being in the likeness of men. In verse 8, I'll begin to read as well. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Before I go into that, that next section, can I say one more thing about Jesus emptying himself? Again, the Trinitarian interpretation doesn't work. Because on the one hand, they want to say that Jesus emptied himself, and he, that yeah. he voluntarily surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Mm -hmm. But they also want to say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Mm -hmm. So how are you fully God if you don't have the glory of God anymore? You don't have the power of God anymore, or you've surrendered them. And then they want to say that God gave those back to Jesus. What? doesn't make sense. Jesus is God. So now you have God who has set aside his glory, and he's going to ask God for that glory back. Again, it just mm -hmm. it becomes such a mixed up, jumbled up mess, mm -hmm. contradiction, that it, it just doesn't make sense. It's better to understand this passage, that these are decisions that Jesus the Messiah is making when he's a human being. And to add something to that, mm -hmm. that is an idea that you find in other mythologies, mm. which gets jumbled into Christianity. Mm -hmm. We don't see anything like that mm. in, in the Bible. No, absolutely mm -hmm. not. Okay, so now the end of verse 7 says, being born in the likeness of man, and verse 8, being found in human form. So this is another place where Trinitarians want to say that the humbling act of Jesus was to be born a human being, was the incarnation. But again, it doesn't work. Because what does this mean? That he was found in human form? Like all of a sudden, God realized he was really God, right? He, oh, he discovered, oh, I'm actually God. Is that, is that what this means? No, it doesn't mean that. I believe what Paul is saying here, and I think, again, we have some allusions to the Old Testament, that this likeness of men, it relates to Adam, in the likeness of Adam, and that Jesus is a human being. He was born for this purpose in a similar way to Jeremiah. Remember in Jeremiah chapter 1 where God said to Jeremiah, I formed you in the womb for this purpose. I formed you in the womb to be a prophet to the Gentiles and to the people of Israel. 
that there was a purpose of God for the birth of this human being, Jeremiah, and in a parallel way to Jesus. This is the plan and purpose of God, that this human being, a human being, was born, planned by God for this purpose. And as it says here, it's when he is a human being. And it says in verse 8, it's when he is a human being. Again, we can see this. He was in human image. It's not the word for form. It's not that, it's not that morphe word. It's when he's a human being that he humbled himself. Now in verse 8, we can see very clearly the humbling act that Jesus takes in verse 8 is not as a God being incarnated as a man. He's a human being, and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Now there, I think we can see in several ways here that Jesus is not God in this passage. One, he's differentiated from God, as we're going to see very clearly in verse 9 in just a second, the next verse. God will exalt him. So the one that is being discussed here, Christ Jesus, the human name and title for the Messiah, Christ is the, is the title. Jesus is his name. That one, the human, dies. He's obedient to death. And then God exalts him. So the person being discussed here dies. God does not die. And he has a God. God will exalt him. And he's differentiated from God. Those two points are clear in this passage. That's just another reference back to Isaiah 53, 12, that he poured out his soul unto death. That's um, yeah, the sermon of Isaiah. It is, yep. It's like in Romans 5, from Romans 5, 19, right? For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And you know, God was doing a work here, right? So God is working through this man, who God anointed, which is what Christ means, Messiah. He was anointed for a purpose. Like the kings were anointed for a purpose in Israel. Mm. And God raised up prophets for a purpose. And just like what you said, Bill, Jesus was born for a purpose. And God formed him in a very unique way. You know, this is that poetic language that we kind of alluded to in the beginning as well. You know, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Paul's saying... He was a man like you and you and me. He was mankind. He humbled himself. He became obedient. Like what you were saying before, if you're obedient, that means that you're taking instructions from somebody else. Mm -hmm. He was taking instructions from God. And he's very clear about that throughout his whole ministry. Yeah. The words I speak are not my words. They're the words that the Father's given me. Which, by the way, contradicts the Trinitarian idea that Jesus volunteered to do this. Volunteers is not really obedience. The passage here is talking about obedience. And you can see that in his prayer when he prayed hmm. that this cup be taken from him and three times. And, yep. he, and then he says, not so my will, but your yep. will be done. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's two wills going on, even unto death, death of the cross. So all in the context of that we have the same mind, that we hmm. give up things in this life because we want to glorify the Father. And his plan is better than our plan. There are things in our life where if we make those decisions for God, it will open up the doors for greater glory in our lives or others' lives or certainly the purpose of God will be fulfilled. Hmm. And that's God's plan for us. It's not just that Jesus is the only one obeying God. Jesus is, through him, making a people who are obedient to God and who can do great things because they give up things in this Their life. life. Yeah. Exactly. Even to the point of death. And, and now Jesus' death is unique. 
his death on the cross is unique. But it's interesting to note some other apostles that were ready to give up their lives even to the point of death. Mm-hmm. We know, for instance, James, the brother of John, the apostle James in Acts chapter 12, he was put to death by Herod Agrippa I. And it's also recorded in Josephus that James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, was put to death by one of the Jewish high priests. And as far as we know, traditionally Paul as well and Peter were put to death for their faith. So that is, that's an example, and Jesus is the ideal example of being ready to lose your life. On the cross, if you remember, he didn't have anything left. They took his clothes. They mm-hmm. rolled dice for his shirt and for his cloak. He didn't have anything left. Well, not just a matter of taking away your house or your books or your car. Mm-hmm. He took away his clothes. Now, he gave up his life on the cross. And there's probably, again, allusion here with, with this whole idea of being in the, in the fashion of man and you know, being a human being. Again, to Adam, remember Adam was found and he, when he realized he was naked. And Jesus is pretty much naked on the cross, too. So you have all these allusions to Jesus being a human being here with Paul. That, that's his point. Like in the book of Hebrews, this human being was like us in all respects, but he obeyed to That's the point of death. Very interesting. It's almost symmetric because Adam was formed, obviously naked, and he put on clothes in his shame. Hmm. Jesus was a man, obviously clothed throughout his whole life, and he despised the shame that was put on him, and he was hmm. killed, I agree with you as well, hmm. naked most likely, to, to further humble him. Yeah. Any other comments? We'll go on to the next verse. Mm -hmm. Now to me, verses 9 through 11 clearly tell us that Jesus is not God, that he's a human being distinct, separate from God. And I don't know how Trinitarians can really, well, I shouldn't say that because I was one for many years. It's difficult to interpret this passage saying that Jesus is God by reading verses 9 through 11. Because We have God and we have Jesus, and one is not the other. Reading verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So, because of the act of humility of Jesus, to the point of giving up his life to death on the cross for others, it's very clear in many other places in the scripture that Jesus' death has benefits for others because of that obedience to death on the cross god exalts him that is god that's all god it's not one person of the godhead exalting another person of the godhead i couldn't see that i couldn't see that differentiation apparently in this verse now i see it now i see here is god god highly exalts jesus it's not jesus exalting himself The glory is given to Jesus by God. The exaltation is done by God and received by Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. As we see in other places in the scripture, as Jesus says, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus sits at the right hand of God. There is no other human being. There's no other angel that's greater than him. 
He is above the angels. Let all God's angels worship him, as is in the book of Hebrews and in, in the Old Testament. So this is the exaltation of mm -hmm. Jesus. And it, it does say it's not as though he had this power before or this glory before and he, he took it back. That's right? a very good point. It was This was basically the first time he has ever experienced this glory or mm -hmm. this power or authority. Yep. He's not receiving again right. glory and power that he had given up. Right. He's being exalted. Because he earned it. Because he did what he was supposed to do. Obedience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like what um, Hebrews 2, 9 says, that he was made lower than angels, but he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Mm -hmm. he, he tasted death for everyone. So that was the humility, right? That he suffered death. Hmm. Now, verse 10 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can see again the differentiation between Jesus the Messiah on the one hand and God, who's also called the Father, on the other hand. Jesus the Messiah is not God, and God the Father is not the Messiah. They're differentiated. That's the path to exaltation. And for all of us, this is difficult to learn. I think this is what Paul is saying. Look, look at where Jesus is now. He's been ex exalted to this the greatest position at the right hand of God, given the name above every other name. How did he get there? Through giving up his life, sacrificing himself for others, becoming a slave for others. And that's the path to glory, not the Gentiles' way of saying, hey, I'm greater than you, you know, I can order you to do that. That's the way the Gentiles, just like Jesus said, that's, that's not the way to glory. The greatest among you is a servant. And if you look down two more verses in verse 13, he's comparing Jesus to us, saying that we, we should have the same mind in Christ. Hmm. It says, first God, which works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Just like it was God that worked in Christ, mm. it's comparing us to the perfect man, mm -hmm. not some half God or fully God, fully man hybrid. It mm -hmm. is. Yeah. There's some people that take a look at uh, verse 10 and say, Well, this uh, every knee bowing in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confessing in the book of Isaiah is referring to Yahweh. Mm. And it's true in the book of Isaiah, it is referring to Yahweh. But you can see Paul is applying this passage. The glory goes to God mm -hmm. through Jesus the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Jesus the Messiah is Lord, as we looked at in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, a couple of weeks ago. God has made Jesus, who was crucified, Lord and Christ. The title Lord means that is the, the one who is above in authority. Of course, he's under God. God has given Jesus that authority as Lord. He's made him Lord. But the bowing of every knee and the confession of every tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord brings glory to God. Mm -hmm. So the ultimate address is Jehovah. Mm -hmm. It's through mm -hmm. Jesus the Messiah. Well, another thing that comes to mind also uh, as far as every knee shall bow is the idea of a kingdom that will never end. Like what it says in Daniel, you know, a, a stone was taken from the mountain of God and thrown down to the earth and it filled the whole earth and this new kingdom is established that will have no end. And the new kingdom has a king that will have no end. 
who is going to be appointed by God. God will make this king. Hmm. And it's not going to be God himself. He's going to be representing God on earth as the king. Hmm. And so that's, you know, fits in with the premise of every knee shall bow to this king. Hmm. Not just one nation or another nation. It's the king of kings who will be ruler of all the earth. That king is the human king. Every knee will bow to the human Jesus. Mm -hmm. Every tongue will confess to the human Jesus that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I'm concerned for Trinitarians because right now they don't want to confess with their tongue and bow the knee to the human Jesus. They do not want to. They say he must be God. They're saying, no, I won't bow the knee to Messiah unless he's God. There will come a time where every knee will bow to the human Jesus and every tongue confess to th that the human Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, he's the firstborn in the new creation. We'd like to close our sessions with a question. The question today is, how can Trinitarians interpret Philippians chapter 2 as referring to God becoming man, when nowhere else in the book of Philippians does the title God mean Jesus, and Christ Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 has a God, as it says in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him.